Writers' Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn. And hello, everyone. I hope you're getting some rain where you are. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe you don't want it. We need rain so bad. Did you get uh, rain yesterday, anyway. Mom? A little bit, yeah. We, we had yeah. a pretty nice rain yesterday, finally. Finally, yeah. This weather. Huh. You know. Oh, it's really weird. We can talk about the weather for our entire lives. Yeah, and never, we're never satisfied, are we? And, and never run out of subject matter. So, speaking of subject matter, what is our subject and our guest, and who is our guest today? Our, our guest today is, <coughs> excuse me, Lisa Del Lewis, and the topic is the sleep de- sleep deprived teen. And it is a most interesting book, and I mean, it's, it's oh gosh, I just can't tell you how, how interesting it is, because it's just uh, so many, many factors that I never even thought about. And uh, of course, I, I was a school teacher, high school school teacher, so I worked with teens a lot, and you know, I just never thought about all this stuff. It's really, a, really a read for parents and uh, educators and uh, everybody. So anyway... <laughs> So here we go. Right. And Karen is, or excuse me, Lisa is a freelance journalist who covers the intersection of parenting, public health, and education. Um, this book, The Sleep Deprived Teen, Why Our Teenagers Are So Tired and How Parents and Schools Can Help Them Thrive, is an outgrowth of her previous work on the topic, which included um, getting California's landmark legislation on healthy school start times passed. And Lisa has written for the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Atlantic Time, et cetera, et cetera. And I heard her yesterday on On Point on NPR. And she has a master's degree from Northwestern University's Medell School of Journalism, an MFA from Mills College, and a bachelor's degree from UC Berkeley. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Lisa. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so... Boy, this subject really seems to have hit a chord with people. I, yeah, you know, it you're, really has. <laughs> it really has. You're getting, you're getting a lot of, um, a lot of articles in major publications. Um, the Atlantic, I just saw one. I just saw in the New York Times, Slate. Um, why do you think, because I know that there have been people working on this for, decades why is it just yes. now really getting the attention it deserves yeah i you know it's a great question i just want to point out that to your point yes it really has been an issue that has been um building over the course of decades and so i was part of a group that helped get this law passed in california but you know, in many ways, I was sort of the spark that helped get it going here, I think would probably be the, the best way to put it, because there, there's such a huge body of research and, you know, sleep researchers and sleep scientists who have been working on this literally for decades. So I think the reason we are seeing so much interest right now, you know, fall back to school for 2022, is because our new law in California just went into effect, just went into effect on July 1st. And it is the first law of its kind in the entire country. We are the first state to, to enact a law 
that sets any sort of um, mandate on how early is too early for middle and high schools to start the day. Now, how did you first become interested in this? So I am a parent um, and a parenting journalist. And so this was an example of where those two roles just really coalesced. Um, for me, it was in August of 2015, because that is when my oldest, my son, was just beginning his freshman year of high school. And at that point, our local public high school, where I live in Southern California, started at 7.30 in the morning. Oh, my gosh. so early. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it was the earliest he'd ever had to go to school. So, of course, you know, I'm, I quickly was noticing that this was far from ideal. I was the one driving him to school every day. We'd get in the car at 710 and, you know, he was there, but he was not, you know, particularly awake. He was hardly, you know, what I would characterize as alert and ready for a full day at school. So of course I was curious, why is it that our high school starts at 730 in the morning? And it was interesting because I started asking around and it, our high school start time had been 7.30 for years and years. Nobody could remember when it had, you know, been a different time, which was pretty interesting. But it wasn't just unique to our high school. This was the case in other communities around the country as well. And what was really particularly noteworthy was that, again, this was August of 2015. Well, the issue was really starting to hit a critical mass. Because just the previous year, the American Academy of Pediatrics had put out a policy statement recommending that middle and high schools start no earlier than 8.30 in the morning. So obviously, 7.30 was really not in range. Um, And so I just happened to tap in really at a time when all of this was bubbling up to to such a big degree. Yeah, and so it was sort of an, an evolution from there. And I'll just sort of quickly summarize. I started writing about it you know, as a journalist. And um, my first article, I think, came out the spring of my son's freshman year. But then there was an article I wrote that was published uh, beginning of his sophomore year, so fall of 2016, that ended up being that spark. Um, It was an op-ed that ran in the Los Angeles Times. It was called Why Schools Should Start Later in the Day. And it ended up being read by one of our California state senators, whose district is in Los Angeles. And it just so happened he had a daughter just entering high school. Their high school was in the midst of discussing whether to move to a later start time. So he read my op-ed. It was an issue that resonated with him. And he decided he wanted to look into the issue further and perhaps introduce a bill on it. And that is exactly what ended up happening. Um, And as far Mm -hmm. as how I found out about that and got looped in, well, I'd been doing this research, as I mentioned, you know, for my own um, writing about the, the issue and had identified a terrific group out there, a resource called Start School Later. It's a national nonprofit. It's been around since 2011. Um, and I had ended up starting my own local chapter with an eye towards trying to make a difference locally. Well, Senator Portentino's office also ended up finding Start School Later, connecting with them. They, they sponsored the bill, in fact, but they also looped in those of us who were local chapter leaders in the state. So I actually was involved even before the bill was officially introduced. And then that bill got introduced in February of 2017. Lengthy process, two and a half years, um, 
but I just sort of, it snowballed from there. Um, I ended up testifying in Sacramento at the state capitol in front of um, the Assembly Committee on Education for one of the hearings for the bill. I was just sort of involved in, in you know, various capacities. And it was this lengthy, you know, drawn out process. Um, first time around, got to the governor's desk, got vetoed. The bill got reintroduced. Finally got all the way back to the governor's desk. By this point, we had a, a new governor, Governor Gavin Newsom, and he's the one that signed it into law in October of 2019. Had a three-year implementation window to allow, you know, communities enough time to prepare because, of course, you know, you do need to, to make adjustments, et cetera. And so that is the law that just went into effect on July 1st. Too late for your son, though. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, he had already graduated by then. However, I do also have a daughter who's going to be a high school senior. So the change did, wow. in fact, help her. And then, of course, it ended up helping far more than, than you know, just yes. my family or yes. my local school. So, right. so really incredible. But as I mentioned, like I was, you know, it, the, the op-ed I wrote really was the spark that led to this bill, but it was such a group effort. Um, other people from Start School Later were involved. Um, the California State PTA signed on as a sponsor of the bill because they very clearly saw that this would positively impact kids' health and well-being. Um, so many of the sleep researchers around the country were strong supporters of this, writing letters of support, et cetera. So um, it, it took a a, a very long and concerted group effort. I was wondering, what were some of the roadblocks that, that kept it from becoming uh, a bill before that? I mean, uh, who was who was against this? Yeah, no, that is such a great question. So there have been bills introduced in other states um, over the years. None of them have been passed. So this is the first one to be passed. And it was it's sort of the same issues um, that come up in individual communities where this has happened, because this has happened in hundreds of communities around the country, but it's just the problem is it's been done on a patchwork basis and just, you know, at the end of the day, not enough of them have changed their start times. So the biggest issue, I would say, it's, it's just a general resistance to change, um, which is uh -huh. understandable, you know, when you think about it, because it does require alterations to not just the school schedule, but, you know, all the other schedules. And particularly when you look at families and the fact that, you know, as parents, we have to construct our lives around that school schedule. What time we have to get them there, what time we have to pick them up or have arranged care for them. And so, mm -hmm. um, and, and not only that, in so many cases, those times change as your kid moves through the system from elementary to middle to high school. So you've already had to, you know, been shifting things and rearranging. And so sometimes the first reaction when you hear, oh, we're going to make a change is, oh, gosh, no, not another change. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. how did they mm -hmm. get so early in the first place? I think school started around between 815 and 830 when I was in high school, and that was almost 50 years ago. When did it? How did it become so early? Yeah, it's a great question because I, I too, you know, it's been a while since I've been in high school. My high school started at eight, um, and eight felt bearable. You know, seven thirty did not. Yeah, fun. yeah. But what what was so interesting because I I ended up with the whole chapter. Is like, I think it's titled like How did we get here? Because it didn't always start so early. Um, you know, back a, a, a while back, I, I don't recall exactly, but it used to be the norm was closer to nine o'clock 
but it oh, yeah. did gradually yeah. drift earlier over time. And what was so interesting was that wasn't done because they said, oh, this is better for students. It was done often because of buses. So, um, you know, there was mm-hmm. consolidation of schools that took place over the years, suburbanization, um, the oil crisis in the 70s, you know, the need, um, you know, the price of fuel went up. And in a lot of cases, districts were looking at how to trim their budgets. And they decided that it was most efficient to use one fleet of buses and do a tiered or staggered system for drop-offs and pickups for elementary, middle, and high schoolers. However, when they did that, again, this was decades ago in most cases, oftentimes by default, they put the older kids in that earliest time slot because this research wasn't yet widely known. And now, of course, we do know, but those start times have endured. And so I call them legacy uh, schedules. You know, it's interesting because, you know, we live in a fairly rural area. And I think that years ago, start times were probably later because farm kids had to chore in the morning before they came to school. So if if school started at 730, that would mean they'd have to start working at 530 or even earlier to get the chores done. Right. And it's so interesting that you mentioned that because there were a couple of amendments that, that or alterations to this bill, I should say, that went through the process. One of them was um, high schools. And, and again, this is public, including charter high schools in the state. The law stipulates no earlier than 830 for middle schools, no earlier than eight. And that was a change to um that was made as part of the process that really allows some more flexibility when we're looking at things, you know, like these, these bus schedules, et cetera. But another um, element that was introduced was an exemption for rural districts, which to me, it, it, mm. you know, I agree with what you're saying, but it really doesn't make sense. Because no. if anything, you would think, well, they've got longer commutes on the bus. Like they have the same sleep needs as every other team. And yet that was a specific um, exemption that was added in, in the bill. I know when my kids were young, I think school started around eight, but it was a rural school district and they had to be on the bus at seven. And, mm. you know, they were once my son was old enough to drive himself, of course, he would leave at the very last minute. But they were the first <laughs> ones on the bus in the morning and the last ones off in the evening. It made a really long day. To have that hour bus oh, ride. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And then the, the other piece now, which I feel like they really just has ramped up over the years, is overscheduling and sort of the expectations on teens. Things like zero period, which I do not even recall that being a thing when I was in high school. Now there are kids taking these classes, you know, at, at zero period before the official school day starts. Well, I did that. We called it early bird, and it was set up for the athletes so that they could start practice earlier so they start school earlier starts practice earlier and but I would go home so I would get out earlier and go home and sleep I would go Mm. home and take a nap every day when I got out (laughs) yeah yeah and that's the thing a lot of kids even today they do nap because they are so tired and naps can help absolutely but, you know, if that is the regular schedule, that is a sign you're not getting enough sleep at yes, night. Because yeah. our teens should be getting 8 to 10 hours up until age 18. Wow. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. And our guest today is Lisa L. Lewis, author of The Sleep Deprived Teen. So let's talk about 
what the sleep needs and the and the sleep times best sleep times are for teens and why why we didn't know this and how we found out <laughs> yeah so it, well so the research really does date back um to the mid 70s and i have a chapter in the book on this really interesting you know quote unquote camp called the stanford summer sleep camp it ran from 1976 to 1985, and this was really where some of the first research and insights into teen sleep really took place. Um, and so there was a, a woman who was a graduate student there who now, um, she was working on her PhD, Dr. Mary Karskadden. She now directs the sleep lab at Brown University. But this was essentially a long-term sleep study where they had kids and teens coming in and they sort of had fun activities, sort of camp-like activities, but really they were uh, analyzing their sleep. So the kids would, would check in for camp and they would have electrodes glued to their skull. They had four of them kind of nested in their hair, two of them taped by their eyes, several of them on their chin. <laughs> and oh they had these little cords coming out of them. I know, I know. I talked to one of the, the former campers who's now an adult and he was telling me all about this. And he said and they had these little cords coming out that were like, you know, sort of thin, like the cords, you know, for your iPhone. So they'd all be sort of tied back in little ponytail when they were going about their activities. But every two hours, the kids had to go back and nap. And they were being uh, monitored during that time. They, um, they were uh, technicians and they were quite literally napping their brain waves and their eye movements and recording all the data. And so this was some of the, the first research that was done looking at teen sleep, and um, Dr. Karskadden has since, I mean, this is over the course of her career, she has studied sleep, not just in teens, but, you know, in, in other age groups as well. But this was some of the first research, and, and then later on, she, um, some of the additional research she did is what showed that melatonin levels, um, the timing of them really shift during adolescence. So, that's what primes us to feel sleepy, melatonin. It's the hormone that is released in the evening and then subsides in the morning. But that shifts to a later schedule for adolescents. And so that's what, what was eventually discovered. And that's why teens aren't really feeling sleepy till about 11 o'clock at night. Um, and then if they need 8 to 10 hours of sleep, well, you just do the math. And that's why when schools start too early, that's a major um, impediment to that. Oh, Yeah. Well, do we have any idea why this melatonin rhythm occurs, you know, naturally? You know, that is a really great question. It's fascinating. I, I, in fact, went back and asked one of the, a circadian biologist who was one of the uh, researchers that I spoke with. Um, and there are theories about that, but there really wasn't anything conclusive. I think it's fascinating. It does happen, not just in humans. Apparently it happens in other mammals too. But as for why, there were sort of a couple of different theories, but there wasn't any sort of definitive answer he could give me, which I thought was fascinating. But what we do know is that it absolutely happens. And so that's why, you know, when people say, oh, if teens are so, t are so tired all the time, why don't they just go to bed earlier? Well, this is why, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that is so interesting. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in the whole concept of circadian rhythms and how they change during your lifetime, it seems like, but also how some people really are morning people and some people really aren't. And some people 
thrive on going to bed early and getting up early, and others really do not. Right. And yet we Absolutely. we tend to have this judgment that it's somehow morally superior if you go to bed early and get up early. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, I know. And it, it is like it's like it's some badge of honor, you know, yes. it's sort of like bragging yeah. about yeah. how little air you, you breathe. You yeah. Like, yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but to your point, yeah, that, you know, there obviously is such a range of human variability. And um, so that range, eight to 10 hours that I mentioned, that's from the National Sleep Foundation. And they, in fact, updated their recommendations a few years back. And in many cases, they actually broadened those ranges. So I think for teens, it used to be eight and a half to nine and a half, and now it's eight to 10, which really does recognize based on, you know, this was them sort of um, looking at all of the various studies that were out there and assessing and then, you know, trying to figure out, well, what, what really is the range that most people are going to fall within. And so for teens, it is eight to 10, which is a, a pretty large range when you think about it. And even so, there are still going to be outliers, but we do know for the vast majority, that really is how much they need. And, and what, eight to 10, meaning if you're getting 10, yeah, that's actually in range and yeah, <laughs> really is, it's important. <laughs> and how about younger children? So the, yeah, the sleep needs change over, you know, the course of our lifetime. So prior to age 14, it's nine to 11 hours. Okay. And then after age 18, it, it goes down slightly to seven to nine hours. Um, yeah. And in fact, I have this whole chart reproduced in the book from this, um, the recommendations that the National Sleep Foundation had issued because yeah, sleep needs do change over the course of our lifetime. So for middle school kids, Eight o'clock is going to be pretty early for them, isn't it? You know, in some cases it is, but nevertheless, you know, I get back to sort of the political process in California. That's what it took to get this bill passed. Mm. And even so, it's the first time there's even been any minimum that's been set. Right. So, yeah, and it and it's you know sometimes the perfect is the enemy of the good, and I think it, no other law of this scope has managed to be passed before. And so, you know, as part of that process, these kind of um, adjustments are made, and in some cases, accommodations, because there are concerns that get raised. One of them, you know, unfortunately, it is the buses and how to make all this happen. And so that was sort of, you know, an acknowledgement of that that still was in keeping with the spirit and allowed this to, to, you know, to be passed into law, which hopefully is going to help spur other similar legislation. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about the challenges for families with changing the schedule and meeting the schedule, I don't, there aren't all that many jobs that start before eight in the morning. I mean, I know there are some factory shift workers and, and, prob and re restaurants and things that do, but, but a lot of jobs start, are, are nine to five. And so, it seems like an 8.30 start time would be more convenient for those families. And you know, it's so interesting because school schedules were never designed for student well-being or for family schedules. I mean, they're, they're really not very family-friendly or work-friendly yeah. right now. Yeah. You know, when you think about having summer vacation and having you know, <laughs> maybe a full week off at Thanksgiving and full days off for teacher prep days. You know, I mean, it's just the reality that we deal with mm -hmm, as parents. Mm -hmm. so, so sometimes the issue does come up, and you know, in communities looking at changing their start times, and we had it here, oh, well, that's going to be hard for working families. 
But the issue is the current schedule often is very hard for working families. Oh, yeah. And if kids um, get out at 2.30 or 3, that's a big gap between then and when the parents are getting exactly. off work. Yeah. Exactly. And so in that case, either you have to have arranged care, you know, or some kind of activity. I mean, in fact, there are crime implications because when you have teens with nothing to do in the afternoon, that is actually the time frame that then you see crime spike so, you know, if anything, it is better to have them in school later. <laughs> yeah, because I don't think um, they're going to get up early and go um, shoplift. <laughs> well, and truly, like, that's what they found. I have statistics. I don't have them right handy right here, but I do get into that in the book. There's a whole chapter on risky behaviors. Yeah, yeah. But the other thing, too, is when you look at parent schedules, you know, they vary so incredibly widely because there are people who are working office jobs. But even them, it's not like that old song, nine to five. I mean, often you have to be at your desk way earlier than nine o'clock. But that's not really like the the typical job anymore. Mm. You know, if you look at it, after the federal government, the two largest employers in the country are Amazon and Walmart. And those are not primarily office jobs. So, you know, that's when you start looking at things like shift work and retail and people whose schedules vary monthly or weekly or even, Mm. you know, a profession like medicine. Some of them are on call at night. I mean, there's so many schedules out there. So there's no one work schedule. And then, of course, there's no one school schedule that could possibly meet all of those, you know, different work schedules. So you may as well go with what's healthiest for the kids. Bingo. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, now, but now, now, and then you have change of time twice a year. Oh, boy. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, it's funny <laughs> you mentioned that because I, I actually wrote an op-ed about that. It was so interesting because obviously it's inconvenient, right? But that happens twice a year. And when it happens in the spring, it's worse because all of a sudden it feels an hour earlier. And that's the timing of when there was that proposed legislation introduced to make it daylight savings time year-round. And the official recommendations from the sleep groups is, no, don't do that. If, if you want to get rid of this, just go back to standard time mm-hmm. all year round. Because otherwise, you're making it essentially an hour earlier, an hour darker during the winter months. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. And our guest today is Lisa L. Lewis, author of The Sleep Deprived Teen. Lisa, would you like to read a little bit from your book? Sure. Um, So The Sleep Deprived Teen is a book for parents where I do lay out sort of, you know, the science of sleep and teen brain development and why school starts so early. I've got a whole section on how parents can get involved and how they can help. But then I also have chapters on all of the different ramifications, you know, why sleep matters, you know, how it affects athletes, how it affects driving, how it affects risky behaviors. So this particular excerpt is from the chapter on mental health, which I think is such an important consideration. Oh, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so you want me to just go ahead and read? Sure, sure. Okay, so this is adapted from that chapter on mental health. Taylor Louise Chu was any college's dream candidate, a hard-driving honor student who played water polo, participated in theater, played trombone in three school bands, and was also a Girl Scout. And that was just freshman year of high school. On weekdays, 
She left her house at 5.30 a.m. so she could be in the pool for 6 o'clock practice. Then came a full day of school, followed by after-school activities and homework, and finally, bedtime, usually between 11.30 p.m. and 12.30 a.m. And then she'd get up early the next morning and do it all over again. I really genuinely liked all the things I did for the most part, Louise Chu told me. At the same time, though, she felt the stress of preparing for college, and there were times it all seemed overwhelming. As she explained, I was very aware of college applications and making and building my resume and making a good impression and seeming like a very well-rounded student. She tried not to think about the pressure she was feeling, but it continued to build. I would go on runs and feel like, what if I just got hit by a car right now? Wouldn't that be nice? I could sit in the hospital for a few weeks. At least I wouldn't have homework to do. She did not have the awareness or the language to identify that she was depressed or to recognize how severe it had gotten. Nor did her parents or her peers, many of whom had similar schedules. The kinds of conversations I would have with my friends would usually devolve into who's working harder, who's more tired, the comparison thing, she said. I just remember feeling so stuck. One evening in February 2002, about two-thirds of the way through her freshman year at Palo Alto High School, she reached the breaking point. Impulsively, she downed a bottle of Advil before joining her family for dinner. Her parents quickly realized something was wrong and rushed her to the hospital, leading to a mandatory 72-hour psychiatric hold. Ruiz Chu describes her overdose as a turning point, although she acknowledged that it was not a perfect 180-degree turn. After reevaluating her classes, she decided to switch from AP to regular-level science, which was her least favorite subject, but she continued her other advanced-level classes. And while she ended up quitting the water polo team, she kept her other activities and added in track and field, which at least did not have practice at dawn. As she explained to me, I think the difference was that I felt empowered to say no and to raise my hands when it was too much. As she later characterized her experience, my hard driving, sleep deprived daily routine exacerbated the pain and the mood swings I was already experiencing as a hormonal teenager struggling to figure out who I was. In the two decades since her attempted suicide, Mental health issues among adolescents, including depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and suicide attempts have continued to rise. According to the CDC's National Youth Risk Behavior Survey, in 2019, almost 37% of high school students said they felt sad or hopeless. About 19% said they'd seriously considered suicide, and about 9% said they'd actually attempted it. Wow. I know. Wow. As parents, we have long grown accustomed to being bombarded with information on how we can keep our kids safe in the world. Everything from how and where they should sleep with newborns to how to protect them from being abducted. Perhaps the most gut-wrenching realization is that we can't always protect them from harm. In fact, the highest risk of suicide our kids will ever face is during the time frame from the preteen years to young adulthood. According to CDC data from 2019 and several years prior, suicide was the second leading cause of death for preteens, teens, and young adults in the United States. Looking back, 
I had been feeling suicidal for probably months, Louise Chu told me when we spoke about her high school suicide attempt. As she explained, the whole winter leading up to the incident, I think I had been depressed, extremely fatigued, and exhausted. I do think sleep was a factor. Even though all of these elements had been steadily building, it wasn't just her sense of hopelessness and worsening depression that was heightened by sleep deprivation. What she characterized as her impulsive decision to down a bottle of Advil was also likely influenced by her chronic lack of sleep. In fact, research shows that getting more sleep is one way to lower teen suicide risk. It was a meta-analysis of previous studies published in 2018 that highlighted what's called a dose-response relationship. For every one-hour increase in adolescent sleep, the risk of planning suicide decreased by 11%. The reality is that even when our teens are not in crisis, they are dealing with a multitude of daily stressors. As they navigate all of this, everything from friends and frenemies to homework deadlines, from minor irritations to major issues, their ability to cope is greater if they are well-rested. But with so many teens functioning in a haze of sleep deprivation, they're simply not as well equipped to handle the daily flood of emotions and stressors. Interpersonal flights are intensified, challenges seem more difficult, and it's harder to discern the best path forward. Unfortunately, far too many teens simply become accustomed to feeling this way. I felt really awful, but I just thought that was normal, Bruise Chu said. Looking back, she wishes she'd been able to recognize all of this when she was still in school. I wish I could take my high school self and be like, give me two weeks of your time. I'll clear your schedule so that you can get nine hours of sleep a night, she told me. If I could have just shown myself what being rested actually could do for your quality of life and productivity, it probably would have made me more of a believer in sleep. And that was Lisa Lewis reading from The Sleep-Deprived Teen. At what point did you realize that you were writing a book about this subject? <laughs> That's a great question. I did not realize. I had never written a book before. So I, as a writer, I, you know, I've, I've done writing of some form for my entire career. Uh, most recently, it has been op-eds and articles, et cetera. And it was interesting, actually, I um, had joined a group called Solutions Journalism Network and had been lucky enough to be paired with a mentor. And we were talking, you know, one of our earliest conversations, because ironically, at that point, I was more focused on writing about sports safety. Well, not more focused, equally focused, I should say, because that had also been an issue that had bubbled up because my son played football. Mm. So I'd been writing about concussions and heat stroke and everything. And so... I had sort of assumed I was going to be concentrating on that in my work with him. And he's the one, when he, heard, when he heard about all my advocacy and, you know, the fact that I had written about this and was so involved, and he said, well, is there a book about this out there? And I thought about it, and I, and I said, no, there, there isn't. And he said, well, you should write one. <laughs> so that is what planted the seed. And, of course, being told, well, you should write one, and then doing it is that, you know, there's a huge There is a know, little bit of a gap yes, from point yes. A to point B. <laughs> You should write a book. Oh, yeah, here so it that, is. <laughs> exactly. So, no, so that planted the seed, and it, it, and I thought about it, and it kind of made sense. But it was also sort of a terrifying idea, you know, having not written a book before. And so, it did take me months to kind of warm to that idea, and then to figure out what that entailed. 
Um, because to write a book, you know, there's so many steps in the process. And for a nonfiction book like this, you write a, a proposal and then you send it out to agents and then the agent, you know, ideally finds your publisher, but that proposal in some ways is like a business plan. So you don't have to have the whole manuscript written, but you do have to have a sample chapter. You have to have a full detailed table of contents, you know, to show people what, what the book's gonna look like, where it's gonna fit in the marketplace, all sorts of information. So it took me months to pull that together, you know, and so, got that done and then it just so happened getting an agent and getting a publisher happened during the pandemic that this all really was was happening in the spring oh. summer of 2020 yeah wow. so it was it was quite a journey and then you know writing the official manuscript that i think i turned in the following summer and then the production process and all that takes a while too so the book the sweet to protein just came out this summer wow congratulations Congratulations. Thank you. Um, you had done a lot of the research, of course, as you wrote articles earlier about the subject, but was there still a lot of research that you had to do to create the book? Oh, absolutely. So one thing that um, really was helpful was that I had been so immersed in the topic already for several years, because really it had dated back to 2015 when I had first started looking into it. But as part of this whole legislative process in California, I was in touch with sleep experts and researchers around the country on a regular basis. So I'd already forged some of those relationships, um, which helped immensely. And then I went back and did you know, tons of interviews. I probably all told, um, it was probably about 50 interviews, probably about 200 different research studies that, you know, that I pulled and, and read. And um, so there was a, a, a lot of additional research, but I had um, fortunately laid that groundwork already. Wow. That, do you, is, is the research process, you know, compared to the writing process, which do you like best, I guess? is my question <laughs> you know yeah I gosh um it's so easy to just do the research and to interview people and that I find very enjoyable you know talking to especially researchers about their topic of interest you know they love telling you about it because they're passionate about it so that part I do really enjoy um, the writing part, especially sitting down and getting started, doesn't necessarily feel enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it also depends on the kind of writing you're doing. Like in this case, this is very much, um, you know, nonfiction journalistic writing, which I feel like is a different part of your brain than doing creative writing. Cause I've also done creative writing. I have an MFA and I do feel like that's even harder. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Have, um, you know, I could see where you could actually do like a novel that uses a sleep-deprived teen mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> as the, as the main character. Yeah. Have you ever th considered that? <laughs> I have never written a novel again. That the idea of that is a bit terrifying. My my fiction has tended to be more in the short fiction realm, but I do feel like that is more difficult because. With journalistic writing, it, it is a, it's, you know, the different, I think it's the whole left brain, right brain thing. And, and so to me, that is 
easier. I mean, not that it's easy, but I guess to say that the creative writing part, I feel like, is even more difficult. <laughs> I can I can see that too, but but the the hard the hardest thing about in some ways about nonfiction writing is particularly a book is structuring the book in a way that is that people don't get aren't bored aren't lost you know that the that it it has to flow but it but you're covering a lot of information so when you set out to write this book how did you come to the structure that you ended up with and what is that structure can I, can I make so a comment about is, this? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, please. <laughs> okay. What I really, really liked about reading this was the way you organized and presented the details. And then at the end of each chapter, you summarize that in in the, the teen sleep takeaway page. I, oh, thank I was, you. you know, that, that is, that's a wonderful thing to do. It really is. Thank you. Because, you know, otherwise you kind of lose yourself in all the details, but then then at the end of each chapter, that's what you want to remember right there. Well, I'm so glad that that is helpful. Yeah. Um, that was um, something I think my editor had suggested because I had it in some, but not in all of them. And so then it was going back and, and making sure there really were these takeaways for every chapter. But structuring yeah. the information really is such a huge endeavor. Um, Absolutely. And I really, yeah. And, oh, and gosh, so I yeah. had a, a fair amount of latitude on how to do that. And really what I was trying to do, well, what I ended up doing, I hope, is writing a, a, the book that I wish that I had had when I was first embarking on this, you know, when my, when my oldest was first entering high school. So and I sort of just kept going back to that, like for a parent. In my situation, you know, before, of course, I had spent seven years immersed in the topic, like what information would be most helpful and how to present that. So I ended up structuring it in thirds. The first third really is the overview and the background on teen sleep and teen brain development and what happens when we sleep and why is it that our schools start so early, et cetera. Um, and then there was one chapter, I think it ended up being a prologue, actually, which is the Stanford Summer Sleep Camp chapter. So that one I got to write more like a feature article. Um, but the rest of them have anecdotes, like the, the excerpt I was reading from the mental health chapter, in some cases, you know, very lengthy anecdotes, but then woven in with all this other information. So that first third, I ended up focusing on, you know, the situation, just some of those basics teen sleep needs, the fact that they change during adolescence, you know, background on, on the science, et cetera. The middle third was all about why teen sleep matters. So I ended up with chapters on each of these different areas. As I was mentioning, mental health and risky behaviors and what it means for school performance, what it means for athletes. Um, also another chapter on sleep disparities, the fact that there are differences, um, that, you know, biological females have more complications, you know, due to the menstrual cycle that can affect their sleep, et cetera. So a whole chapter on that, mm -hmm. just looking at this information. And then the entire final third of the book was really focused on how parents can help their teens get more sleep. And so it's things you can do 
in your home, looking at daytime strategies, nighttime strategies, and also a whole lot of information about if you want to do advocacy in your local community to help change your start time. Mm -hmm. A whole lot of information about that. And then a little case study, like behind the scenes, this is the whole rundown of how it went down, you know, in California. (laughs) So I know you, you said there was a lot of compromise involved in getting that bill passed. What to you would be the ideal start time for high school? Well, I think 8.30 or later, you know, I, I just defer to the official recommendations <laughs> okay. from the medical experts. But what's so interesting is it's not 8.30. They say 8.30 or later. Right. So 9 o'clock. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and some other countries, that is closer to what, what you know, their normal starts. Yeah. Time. You know, obviously, you're not going to start like at noon. Right. <laughs> but it is interesting because they say 8.30 or later and and it allows, you know, still a lot of flexibility. You just have to not mm-hmm. do it too early. Yeah, for me, I think nine would be good. Right. <laughs> yeah, me too. I think that's when we started when I was a kid. Really? When I was a kid. Wow. Yeah, I think wow. so. I can't yeah, remember, but I, I know mean, when that's, I went to for, for, Oh, go ahead. I know when I went to college, and then there were classes started at 730 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that yeah. that's a good point. Like when kids go to college, a lot of t- a lot of kids won't sign up for classes that start before nine. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You get so much more control of your own schedule yeah. after high school yeah. because most colleges do not say you have to take a seven thirty class five days a week. Right. You know, then you get out in the work world and and you do have some choice in what kind of a job. You take if you are an early bird, you know, you might naturally gravitate toward jobs that, you know, are more in line with that versus if you're not. Yeah. Whereas with high school, like you have no choice wherever you live, whatever that local high school time is, you're required to be there by that time. So that's why it's difficult when they're starting too early, because it's the required time. It's not just a suggestion. (laughs) So, Lisa, there are a lot of school districts that start at 830 or later throughout the country. Some of them have always done that probably. Some changed over, you know, as this information came out. What kind of results, have there been studies that show actual benefits from that? Yes. Yeah, and in fact, the very first school to change its start time was actually back in 1996 in Minnesota. So, I mean, this based on the research. So, and to your point, some schools already had, you know, later start times. Um, but there have been so many studies done over the years, and in some cases in these pretty large areas. So, for instance, Seattle was one of the largest jurisdictions to change its start time up until now with California. So they, the city of Seattle changed in 2016. And what they found when they looked pre and post studies in terms of sleep, that the high schoolers had a 34-minute increase in median sleep duration. And then there's another even more recent study. This was in the Denver area, the Cherry Creek District, which I think is a suburb of Denver, but it's pretty big. They have 55,000 students in their district. So they moved their start time in 2017 and their high schools had started at 710. Whoa. They moved them to 820, I know. And what they found was high schoolers were getting about 45 to 50 minutes more sleep. Which, I mean, so these kind of studies, you know, that the, the individual numbers vary, but, but I think the takeaway is when schools move to later start times, students get more sleep. And, and, and often, I'll just say one last quick thing, which is that often people say, oh, well, if you move to later start times, kids will just stay up later at night and it'll be a wash. Well, it's not. 
because they stay up a little bit later at night, but they more than make up for it with the additional sleep they get in the morning. And have there been some um, confirmed results in terms of graduation rates or test scores or anything like that? Yes, there have. In fact, this was really impressive. So there was a study that came out in 2017, right when I was immersed, you know, with the bill. And so, of course, we shared this. So this particular study, it was 30,000 high schoolers, 29 high schools in seven different states. And when they looked at the data, it showed that when schools moved to later start times, the average graduation rate went from 79% to 88%. Wow. That's huge. I know. It's incredibly impressive. Wow. Lisa, have you ever written anything else that has had such a wide impact on the world? (laughs) (laughs) I have not. I have not. And I have to say, you know, as a writer, you, 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 you write your, your article, you put it out in the world, and then you, you never know, right. you know what kind of impact it's right. going to have. You, course, you hope it course. will be read and people will connect with it. But I could not have possibly foreseen how this particular, you know, op-ed, what was going to happen as a result. I think you could never plan like, oh, this is how I'm going to go ahead and, and, and have this, this, this lovely plan. And now you'll, so forever, you'll forever be known as the woman who promoted sleep for teenagers. It's, it's incredible. I mean, really, it was very fortuitous. But, you know, just the timing of when I happened to get involved, the fact that I wrote this that happened to be read by somebody, you know, with the power to introduce a, a bill on the topic, you know, with whom this resonated, and that there was already this large body of research and all these other people who were also eager to, to help see this get passed. I mean, it truly took all... All these different elements were so crucial. I mean, even just looking at the political process, the fact that it was two and a half years, well, that was the state senator really is the one who shepherded it through all that. You know, I'm not a legislator. I had never seen it up close before. That was kind of fascinating. So everyone sort of was contributing, you know, in different ways. And it, it really did take this, you know, years-long group effort. Well, Lisa, when I heard you yesterday on the radio on On Point on NPR, um, I think there was also – one of California's congresswomen was being interviewed yes. and that yes. she has repeatedly yeah. um, tried to get a, a law passed nationally to at least study this. Exactly. Yeah. So the U.S. Representative Zoe Lofgrinch, uh, her district was in San Jose. And she has been advocating for this since the 1990s. <laughs> in fact, I spoke with her as part of the research for this book. That's when she first introduced this act in Congress, the Z's to A's Act, (laughs) Uh, because as I'm sure you heard, Congress does not have the jurisdiction, you know, to set school start times, but she did want to raise awareness of this. It had hit her radar because of her own high schoolers back then, and she continued to reintroduce the Z's to A's Act ever since then. She was absolutely one of the proponents for this bill in California. Um, and and was a strong supporter of it, and yes, has been a strong supporter <laughs> of later start times since the 90s. So, Lisa, what are some of the things other than later school start times that parents can do to help their teens get more sleep? 
I think probably one of the biggest, I would say, is looking at this whole issue of teens being overscheduled, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think really is the case so often these days where you have teens who have a full day of classes, but many or sometimes even all of those classes are advanced level, meaning, you know, heavier homework load. Plus, they're involved in sports or other extracurriculars. Maybe they have jobs on top of that. And to sort of look at this, you know, the full picture of all these time commitments they have and just try and see if you've even left an eight to 10 hour window (laughs) in that schedule to allow them to be able to get enough sleep. Because if you haven't, then obviously, you know, maybe they're overscheduled. Um, and that's, you know, I say that they're knowing that, yes, the family has some control of that, but that's also sort of these broader expectations. You know, they're doing this because they feel like they have to in order to be successful. To, be, to get into the college um, they want, to get to get the career they want eventually. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the bar just keeps going higher and higher, but it really is putting this immense stress on teens. It's cutting into their sleep time. And then, of course, it's also exacerbating mental health issues which then being sleep deprived exacerbates further. So, you know, it really is a, a difficult situation. And how, and how um, does technology also, play into this? I, I was just <laughs> going to say technology. Absolutely. It's also part of the mix in many cases. And it's, uh, in, it's, it's sort of the elective tech use, social media and stuff, but you know, teens also are using computers and are online just to do their homework too. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not turning in handwritten book reports anymore. The way I <laughs> well, and then right. one thing that I thought was fascinating. So teachers will set, you know, due date for an assignment. Teams have to turn it in online, but often the default time that the system will choose is 11:59 PM. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Right. And so that then just sort of tacitly encourages them to do it mm-hmm. later. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that piece of it just to be aware of, but then there is the other piece, you know, teens are on, um, tech, you know, social media, et cetera. And that is, it's a huge topic. I ended up with a whole chapter on this because it, you know, the tech has just become such a huge part of all of our lives, but for teens in particular, it is such a crucial part of their social life and how they stay connected and really does play a, a large role, you know, uh, from that standpoint, the same way, you know, when I was a teen we were on the telephone all the time, that was a critical way to stay in contact. So it really is a piece of their lives, but it can, it, well, there's three main ways tech use can affect sleep. And this, this was super interesting, I thought. So the first is it just takes away time from sleep. You know, if you're up until one in the morning, you know, on a video chat or playing a video game, whatever. Um, the second is that it's stimulating and engaging because if you are going back and forth with a friend or you're doing a video game or something like that, it is something that is keeping you alert. It's not kind of helping you drift off to sleep. So those are sort of the two main ways that the sleep experts thought that tech use was impacting sleep. The third way is blue light. And essentially what I heard was, yes, that is a factor, but these other two factors really kind of play a, a greater role in how tech can impact. Well, sleep. are there any of us who don't sometimes end up spending way more time looking at Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or or YouTube or TikTok or something than we ever intended 
just because, oh, just one more 30-second video, just one more, I'll just read one more tweet, I'll just look at one more post, and suddenly it's half an hour later. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and so when I talk to some of these experts, and, you know, and I go into this in the book, all of those different kinds of apps and everything that you referenced, all of this has been designed to be deliberately immersive. To keep us online yes. as long as possible, you know, with yes. likes yeah. or, you know, things like that. So, so we do it as adults and for teens whose brains are primed for reward seeking, they're even a more receptive audience yeah. <laughs> for things like likes or leveling up in a video game. Or and we could, we could go into a whole lot more detail on the teen brain development and how that affects, how sleep affects that and not getting enough sleep and, the risky behavior. There's just so many issues that you delve into in the book that we didn't even really have time to explore because we are out of time. That's why you have to get this book and read it. So. <laughs> yeah, no, it's such a huge topic. It really is. And I did have to oh, bring myself in because there's so much to say. <laughs> so we've been talking with Lisa Lewis, author of The Sleep Deprived Teen, Why Our Teenagers Are So Tired and How Parents and Schools Can Help Them Thrive. And I want to thank you so much for spending this time with us, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. And Caroline, it. do you have some closing words for us? <clears throat> yes. Now think about it. Sleep, something every living creature does and needs to survive. And teens are the leaders of tomorrow, and they need to have the best society that we can give them physically and mentally to prepare them for the future, theirs and ours and the world's. Well, thank you, and see you all next week on Rudder's Voices, and try and get enough sleep in the meantime. (laughs) Yes, by all means.